Eastern Europe against the emperor, Charles V, and the pope of the time. He was summoned to face trial at Worms. The emperor granted him safe passage. But his enemies in the church <clears throat> did not intend to allow him to stand trial. They plotted to kill him as he entered the city. This was the fate of John Huss a few decades earlier as he was due to stand trial. He was captured by the mob and burned at the stake. On April the 2nd, Luther began his long journey. <clears throat> his journey was far from a trip of repentance which the church had hoped he would express. Luther was welcomed as a hero in every city he traveled through and was given the pulpit in many of the cities to teach, to train, to preach God's Word. As he approached the city to which he was to stand trial, his dear friends, Philadelphia, heard the enemies of Luther plotting his murder. And he sent a messenger to him before he entered Worms, warning him, Don't enter the city. You will be killed. Luther glanced over at the messenger and with steely resolve said, Go tell your master that even should there be as many devils in Worms as tiles upon housetops, still I would enter it. <laughs> Indeed he did. He entered he stood trial. He defended the Word of God. He took his last stand, in a sense. And we know the rest. He left. God protected him. Stole him away to a castle in which he interpreted the Word of God into German vernacular, where the people could read it. And the Reformation was set aflame, and the pleasant peasant revolt was started. And he then put it down and put it back into place, and he started what we know as the Lutheran church. The first Protestant churches sprang up from the truth of God's word. And this man, with this steely resolve to stand trial, even in the face of death. It was not always like that with Luther. That's the public Luther. The private Luther was beset with depression and physical infirmity and often cried himself to sleep and awoke with tears only to cry all day in the solitude of loneliness. Even believe God had forsaken him at some points. After his long life, he laid on a bed to die. He was recounting his experiences in his life to those that were gathered around him. And <clears throat> he remembered that day, April the 16th, as he had received that message. And these were his words. I was then undaunted. I feared nothing. He believed that God was his shield. He believed that God was his fortress. He believed that God would deliver him. Life as a Christian is a life of constant battle because the world around us is fallen. Our flesh is weak and sinful. Our enemy seeks to devour our faith, Peter says. He roams about seeking whose faith he might devour to cause them to pull back from their belief in Christ. The fact is that some of us in this room are struggling to keep our faith right now. You're struggling because the enemies of your faith are gathered around you by the thousands and they seek to crush you. I don't want to be too specific, but some of you are struggling, I know, because you thought everything in your marriage was all right and good and now you've actually heard the words of divorce uttered 
but you never thought you would hear. Some of you have gone through that terrible trial already. Others are paralyzed by guilt and the sin that caused the guilt, and you believe that this time has come where God is now saying, you failed. Your attempts at righteousness have been a failure. You don't deserve my love. I'm not going to forgive you. I'm done with you. Some of you believe that today. You believe God's, as William Cooper would say, you believe God's election, and you believe that He has His elect, but you've begun to believe I'm not one of them. You're convinced by your flesh and by your enemies that God will not forgive you today. You've begun to believe that there is no salvation for you in God. Frankly, I'm preaching this sermon and I'm fighting depression. I don't know why. You know, this week seemed like every other week. And then Wednesday night as I laid in bed, my heart began to fear. And I've spent the last days praying and begging God, repenting and calling on Him. I guess my moping became obvious yesterday. And, and so I have a loving wife who asked, what's going on? It's hard not to have an answer. <clears throat> I don't know. So she encouraged me to come here. So that's what I did. And I've spent time with the Lord. And, and I'm thankful for a godly wife that cares enough about me to give me that time. And I have no intention of faking anything. I'm still fighting. <clears throat> I want you to know that I'm fighting by the grace of God. I want you to know that the Lord is sweet. And there have been moments in this week where... I've gotten doses of hope and grace and faith. And last night when I got home, I laid out my clothes for the day. And I ate supper by myself and I, I crawled into bed. And I went to sleep. Why? Because God's sovereign. And when my heart doesn't feel it, I still know that He loves me. His love is not contingent on feelings. His love is not contingent on my condition. His love has been expressed clearly and precisely in the death of His Son on my behalf. And so I refuse to question Him. But I don't want to fake in front of you that I feel all goosebumpy this morning. I don't. But I have confidence in the Lord and I believe that He will sustain me. And the truth is, whether you're Martin Luther or you're like me and you're struggling with the spiritual fight, God is still God. 
And our faith is shown in Psalm 3 to have a source of great comfort. The title of the sermon is, How Can You Sleep When Your World Is Falling Apart? I want to read the text. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. It also can be translated, many are saying, not of, but to my soul. It's speaking, it's speaking to the fact that these attacks are reaching his soul. They're getting to David. Not just that they're lobbing attacks, but they're actually hitting home. They're hitting him where it counts. Selah. We don't really know what this word means. It, it could mean pause. It could mean crescendo in music and change keys. It could be a moment where the harpists tune their harps a pitch higher and begin to play louder. We don't really know what this word means. But it's an emphasis, and you'll see it as we go through Psalms. Second verse of the song, of the prayer. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. <clears throat> the Bible never separates praying, God's people praying, and God answering. When people pray, God answers. When His people cry out to Him, God always answers. He has confidence in that. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Last verse. Arise, O Lord. The battle cry that we find in Numbers where the people of God raise the banner and cry out to Him. Rise up before us. Go into battle with us. Save me, O my God. For you strike all of my enemies on the cheek, on the cheekbone. You break the teeth of the wicked like predators who are seeking to chew at him and bite him. And he says, God strikes them and breaks their teeth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. If you have a good English translation, you notice that I read at the very beginning a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. These titles go back, as far as I know, all the way to the Hebrew. And we're not certain if the original authors wrote them. That's a good possibility. Or if Ezra, when he compiled the Psalms in his day, if he added them. But we know they were there, and they were translated into the Septuagint, and they were translated into the major translations throughout all languages. There has been a great de debate in theology of whether, in, in biblical studies, and whether they're actually inspired or not. I don't want to get into all that technical stuff. I do believe they help us. They help us often understand the history and the background, like the one today that says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. This gives us a historical setting for the words that we then read. And maybe you're familiar with that story, maybe not. I've learned not to assume anything uh, when it comes to this type of thing. So I want you to hold your place in Psalms. And turn with me to 2 Samuel 13 to grasp the historical setting. We're not going to read the entire story. It spans four chapters. 
And it, it, I will tell you, it's some of the highest drama in all of the Bible. <laughs> now, you know, David has committed the sin of adultery. David has committed murder. David has lost his son of that adulterous affair. He and Bathsheba's son, he begged and pleaded with God, and he said, please take my life and let this one live. And God didn't answer the way he wanted. God took his son. But the grief didn't stop there. No, his oldest son, Amnon, lusted after his half-sister, Tamar, a beautiful woman, the Bible says, a virgin. And Amnon connived and deceived David to bringing Tamar to, Tamar to his house. And he then, after she baked him cakes, ployed her into his bedroom and he took her and had sex with her. He raped her. He forcibly raped her. And then he was angry against her as if it was her fault. And he threw her out and he bolted his door and she left in weeping ripping her robes and putting dust on her head. And her brother, her full brother, Absalom, saw her. Absalom was beautiful. He looked like a king. The Bible says that every year he cut his hair and they waited in shekels. That's how heavy it was. Don't you wish, Rod, we had hair like that? I do. I mean, he was blessed with a full head of hair and he was a handsome young man and he saw his sister and he said, has Amnon defiled you? And she said, yes. He told her, go into my home and wait there. For two years after this sin was known, David did nothing. The Bible says David became angry and he did nothing to give Tamar justice. Absalom watched this. He became more and more angry. He tricked David, fooled him into sending Amnon up to shear the sheep. And he told his servant, Absalom did, when you see him, kill him. I give you the word to do it. And he did. David's house is in shambles. He's committed adultery. He's murdered Uriah, one of his best and most trusted men. His son, his baby son, has died. His oldest son has raped his sister, his daughter, Amnon's sister. Absalom now has murdered the oldest son. His house is in shambles. Absalom leaves for three years, goes to Geshur, finds refuge with a king there. David doesn't go. Although the Bible tells us that David desired to go, in verse 39 of chapter 13, it says, The spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead, but he didn't go. He didn't go. He remained inactive for three years. Absalom lived in exile. And chapter 14 tells us that Joab comes to David and tells him a story in which David, always David's getting caught in these stories. Nathan gets him in it and now Joab gets him, right? And he gives a just judgment. And Joab says, won't you live by it? Your son's in exile. Won't you go get him? So he sends Joab. Absalom comes home to Jerusalem. For two years, David refused to see his son. See, we always focus on the good things about David. He's a man after God's own heart, but David's life was in shambles. His family was falling apart. He was not leading. He was not being a godly father. He was failing. 
Absalom then burnt. It's a really neat thing. Absalom calls for Joab. Joab won't respond. So Absalom burns his barley field down. Then Joab comes. That, that always happens. When they hit your pocketbook, you, they get your, your attention. So Joab says, what did you burn my field down for? Absalom says, you wouldn't come. I wanted you to go talk to David, my father. I wanted you to find out why he won't see me. You wouldn't come, so I burned your barley down. Now you're here. Go tell him. Joab went and told David. David called for Absalom. And when Absalom comes in, it appears, at least on the surface, that they reunite together. That they make amends. In 2 Samuel 14, verse 33, it says, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Amen! No. Absalom has a conspiracy in his heart. Chapter 15 tells us Absalom got a chariot, got horses. David seemed to accept him. Absalom seemed to be made right. But what he did is he camped out at the gate. And when people from Israel would come to see David, his father, for a just judgment, Absalom would say things like this. My dad, he's lost touch with y'all. He doesn't care about you. What tribe are you from? What city are you from? Yeah, well, that city. If my dad cared about you, he'd have somebody to hear your case. But he doesn't. I'll hear your case. If I was the king, I would give you justice. The Bible says that in this way, he turned the people's hearts to himself away from David. And when he had built enough power around himself, and he had even convinced Ahithophel, David's one of his most trusted advisors, to follow him, he took 200 and went up to Hebron. He told the people, when you hear the trumpet sound, shout forth, Absalom has been crowned the king in Hebron. So he went up to Hebron, and a messenger came to David and said, Your son is the king. He's making himself the king, and he's going to come for you. David's life is in shambles. David, rather than face his son in battle and destroy both armies and a city which he loved, David humbled himself. He saw, I believe, he saw his sin. And he decided to leave town. He, in brokenness, started to leave town. The Bible says that he left barefooted from the palace with his head covered and his face towards the ground. And he crossed the Kidron Valley. And, and before mounting Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives to go out of the temple complex, in a sense, <clears throat> and the palace complex, Zadok, the high priest, brings down the Ark of the Covenant. Now listen. The Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of the living God. It's no small matter. Zadok is saying, God is on your side, David. Take this. God's on your side. If you take this, the people will follow you, David. They'll see that God's on your side, David says. Zadok, take the Ark of the Covenant back. To Mount Zion. Place it there. If God is for me, then he will bring me back to this place and I will worship him in his temple before the ark. But if this is being done because of my sin and God does not side with me, 
I'm ready to take his punishment. Interpretation, David admitted his guilt. He was humble. He was broken. He covered his head, he faced the ground, and he walked to town, the edge of town. And he let all who processed with him out into the wilderness go before him. And he was last. He has made his repentance. If he has no pleasure in me, then I will not see this place again. This is a terrible turn of events, only exacerbated by the rebellion of men like Mephibosheth. You remember, Mephibosheth was the lame son of Jonathan. That when David ascended to the throne, he had every right to kill. He was the last living heir of Saul, right? Did he kill him? No. He extended grace to this man. And he gave him a home and he gave him Jonathan's inheritance and he treated him like one of his own. He let him eat at his table. Mephibosheth, when he finds out Absalom's coming to dethrone David, tells his friend and and his confidant Ziba, the day has come when I shall inherit the kingdom due to me by my father. He betrays David. It's made worse that when he walks through the territory just before you come to the Jordan River, leaving Jerusalem, leaving the promised land, he's met on the way by Shema, the Benjaminite, a relative of Saul. In chapter 16, verses 5 through 14, we read one of the most heart-wrenching accounts of all. When King David came to Bahurim, There came out a man of the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shemai, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed David continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shemai said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. The king said, In complete, broken humility. What have I to do with you? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shemai went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust in the air. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. 
This is the setting of Psalm 3. David is not crawling in the satin sheets in a palace talking about supposed enemies that might be coming after him. David is facing the betrayal brought on by a son and Ahithophel, one greater than a son, and Shemai, and thousands of others in Israel. He's in a wilderness, laying on his back with tear-wetted cheeks, with no shoes on his feet and no crown on his head, but sackcloth, looking up into the stars. He lays his head against the sovereign providence of God and goes to sleep. And when he wakes up, he writes the psalm that we're reading today. It's known as the morning psalm. Psalm 4 is known as the evening psalm. They're twin psalms. They go together. This text has become very dear as I've studied. There are four things I want us to see that will help us in a response to disaster or to oppression or to spiritual oppression First of all, when we are children of God, we will still face times that life falls apart. First thing we need to see is in this prefix that life fell apart for a man after God's own heart. Just because we become Christian does not mean life is easier. I don't know if that's what you signed up for, but I'm just here to tell you, it doesn't get easier. It gets more difficult often. Look how David addresses him. He says, Oh, Lord. Notice that it's in all caps. That means it's not Adonai, which he is translating here, but rather Yahweh, the covenant name of God. One commentator says, This is the parallel in the old covenant to the new covenant, Abba, whereby we call out from the Spirit, Abba, Father, Daddy. In all of his persecution, and in all of his shame, and in all of his being kicked out of his own house by his own son, David never lost sight of the fact that God was his God. That the covenant was between him and David. And he calls him by his sweet covenant name. He's not talking in general about a God. He's talking about his personal Lord, his Yahweh. Times will be hard for us as Christians, but we should never lose the sight of the fact that He is our Daddy. He is our Father. And the Hebrew indicates here that many are rising against me. Many are saying, when it says many, what it's indicating to us is that this is increasing. This rebellion hasn't just started with a group and kind of moved, but rather it's picked up like a snowball all those who will come with them. The rebellion is growing. The numbers arrayed against him are large. David's enemies are not only attacking him physically, but they're attacking him spiritually. In verse 2 it says, They are saying to my soul. In other words, the piercing errors of the enemy have come into his very being, into his very seat of his will, who he is. His personality is under attack. His spiritual life is under attack. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul to my soul. And what are they saying? There is no salvation for him in God. 
Spurgeon commenting on this text says, Doubtless, David felt this infernal suggestion to be staggering to his faith. If all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. This is the greatest, most painful of the attacks. God doesn't love you anymore. You're getting what you deserve. Justice has been served. There is no mercy. There is no grace, David. And some of you gathered here feel that in your very soul this morning. And you need to stop pretending that everything's okay. And you need to stop putting on the mask every morning and saying, I'm going to play the part. I'm going to be the man. And we need to be humble like David and cast our eyes towards heaven and say, if there's no help in God, there's no help. It's from a similar situation which David says in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills from hence my help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. In all of falling apart that's going on around him, David never lost the fact that God was his God. And you don't need to lose hope in that either. I don't need to lose hope when my soul is struggling. We need to hope in God. We can take to heart in the story of David the fact that even the most prized of his children come under the hand of his providence. Even the most loved of the children of God face hard times. And God is faithful. In truth, I think we see here a shadow and a type of the greater son of David, Jesus In Matthew 27, verse 43, the people at the cross say, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. They called in to question the faith of Jesus Christ. And we're surprised they call in to question our faith. The the pain and the fear that David felt in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem while Absalom was taking his throne is just a peace of the pain that rose up in Christ as people mocked and jeered at the foot of the cross. We don't serve a high priest. We don't live with a high priest who is not aware of our struggles, people. Grace Fellowship, you're struggling this morning. Let me assure you, your high priest is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. And you say, I don't feel it. You don't have to. Don't be surprised that you don't feel it. Because we're so accustomed to what we can see and what we can touch and what we can feel, often God withdraws His presence enough so that we can't feel Him. So that we can't see anything tangible. Therefore, He strengthens our faith's resolve to rest on what we cannot see and what we cannot feel and what we cannot mouth words to, but rather our heart cries to Him, Daddy, help me. Some of us have counted the hard times of life as something to turn back from, and God says, set your face into the wind of my providence and watch your faith soar. Don't give up 
Oh, Lord, many are my enemies. And many are they who gather around me. And they say to my soul, he has no help from the Lord. When, secondly, we are children of God and life falls apart, we must know the character of God and call on him as our helper. Verses 3 and 4, the second stanza, they reveal to us the character of God. In this prayer, David shifts in verse 3 from focusing on his condition and his problems to focusing on the one who can fix his problems and is the salve of his wounds, the Lord. But the Lord. But you, O Lord. What is the character of God? Yahweh, he says, is a shield. In Genesis 15, 1, it is said of God that he is the shield for Abram. This is an ancient name for God that David has drawn forward here in his text. He sees God as his protector. The reference here is not to a shield like we often think, one who protects us against darts above or that are coming at us, but rather the shield in, in protection here is underneath and beside and above and about. It's all around us. The Lord is my protector. Yahweh is our protection. In the day of trouble, we have to remember that Yahweh is our glory. Look at this text here. It says, my glory and the lifter of my head. My glory. David is being stripped of all earthly glory. He's walking around in clothes covered in ashes with sackcloth over his head and no shoes for his feet. He's laying on a cold wilderness floor. He doesn't have a palace. He doesn't have a crown. He's not holding his holy scepter. He's separated from everything that has spoken the love of God to him. All of the renown that he had built up in Israel as being the greatest of all warriors and greatest of all kings, it's gone. Overnight, he loses it all. And what does he say? <clears throat> he basically says, I don't need that. I don't need the glory this world has to offer. The Lord is my glory. He is my shield and He is my glory. And He is the one who lifts up my head. In other words, He will restore my joy. In the middle of the most depressing of circumstances, what David is saying from his heart is, you will protect me regardless of how this turns out. I very well may die. Absalom may very well kill me. But if he does, God is my glory. And God is the fullness of joy. He's all I need. He's all I have. Proverbs 3.34 and later James 4 verse 6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In the humble condition of the wilderness, in his most depressed state, God gave grace to David to see that he was still with him. The fear of the condition of our situation will drive us from God if we don't focus humbly on the source of grace, Jesus Christ, and latch on to him in faith. And then we can sing with Edward Moat. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is 
sinking, saying, I dare not trust the what? Sweetest frame. I don't trust the sweetest of emotions and the sweetest of compliments. I don't, I don't trust anything. Jesus Christ is all my hope and stay. That's what David's saying from the wilderness. That's what we have to say is that God is our protector. God is our glory. And God is the one who returns joy to our life. And finally, in this section, we see that God, Yahweh, answers prayer. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me. Is that not amazing? David is in the wilderness. He has just spent the night on something less than a bed at the La Quinta Inn or the Motel 6. He ain't even getting to stay in the posh surroundings that God has placed him in, right? He's laying on the dirt. And he says, God answered my prayer. You see that? Because he trusts the character of God, he knows God will answer. Often I find myself praying and doubting. Praying, oh God, help me. I'm down, I'm depressed. Even last night as I prayed, I begged and pleaded with God. And yet then I found myself saying in my heart, God's not going to answer. That's not how David prayed. David prayed and said, God will answer. He will hear me from his holy hill and he will answer me. He knew the character of God. So Grace Fellowship, as we Face whatever it is we're facing, whatever the condition may be, whatever the trial and circumstance, we have to have confidence in the character of God to protect us, to be our glory, to give us the joy of our salvation, and to answer our prayer. And don't wait till the prayer is answered and then look back and say, oh yeah, God did do that. That's okay. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. But we've missed all the time that we were in the condition to be praising God. Paul says, pray without ceasing, with everything, by prayer and supplication. Make your request known to God with what? Thanksgiving. That's what, that's what David's doing. He's thanking God. You're going to hear me. I've got confidence that you're going to hear me and you're going to answer me. Thirdly, when we are children of God and life falls apart, we will experience His peace through communion with Him. Verses 5 and 6 are some of the sweetest of all the texts in this passage. He's communing with God in prayer. And then what does it say? I lay down and slept. Tens of thousands of people are in Jerusalem massing an army to come and kill him. And what does he do? Goes to sleep. Why? Because he trusts God. Ten thousands and thousands of devil armies are not enough to take your faith when Christ stands on your behalf. You say, it's going to overwhelm me this time. This depression, this fear, this struggle, these fleshly thoughts, it's going to consume me, it's going to overcome me. No, it's not. Recline on Christ. He will overcome. We find in this text, I believe, a real-life drama that is told to us by Paul, the theology behind what David says here. I laid down in sleep and I rose again. Why? Because God sustained me while I slept. God sustained me 
I will not be afraid, though there are thousands of people against me who have set themselves against me and are continuing to be against me. I won't be afraid. Why? Paul answers, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's what That theology right there is why David laid down and went to sleep. My faith, he would later say in the Psalms, is not in horses, it is not in chariots, and it's not in many soldiers. My faith is in the Lord. He is my deliverer. He knew it didn't matter if his army was outnumbered by thousands. If God was for him, who could be against him? He goes on, Paul does, to say this. Who shall separate us from the love of God, Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or son who seeks to take our throne? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's David's attitude in our text. If I'm slaughtered, I'm slaughtered. If I die, I die. It doesn't matter. God be glorified, not David. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that true? Is it true? You really believe it? Or have you been convinced that there's no help from God? I'm convinced that my biggest struggle is the lack of faith to believe and take God at His word. I'm convinced that our biggest struggle is that we know too much and apply too little the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. But that is not a truth to be set on a shelf and gawked at and paraded around as a hammer to beat someone with, but is rather a shield in the middle of the battle. It is a glory by which we shine forth to the world. It is joy for our salvation. Finally, in this text, when we are children of God, and life falls apart, we can be confident in the salvation of the Lord. Verses 7 through 8, David answers the conditions of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, with 7 and 8. In 1 and 2 he says, How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There's no salvation for him in God. Skip down to verse 7. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. There's no salvation for him in God, is what his enemy said. David said, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
His answer to his condition is to trust in the sovereignty of God that is displayed. Notice it doesn't say that salvation is contingent or belonging to anyone except God. Salvation belongs to who? The Lord. He calls. Excuse me. Let me start again. He elects. He predestines. He calls. He sanctifies. He justifies. He will glorify. It's His salvation. It's not dependent on me. It's not dependent on my feelings. It's not dependent on me being good enough to accept it or receive it. It's not dependent on me doing enough in the church that He sees me and approves of me. He is the one who saves based on His own character. He is the one who draws us to Himself and saves us and keeps us. The answer of David to his enemies is, Salvation belongs to the Lord. In that, I also see him taunting them a little. There's no salvation for David in God. David says, guess what? Salvation doesn't belong to you. You don't get to decide who's saved and who's not. I don't get to decide who's saved and not. God does. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He gives it to whom he wills. So here David then turns his mind finally in this last petition to the people of God. <coughs> this week I've been consumed with myself. At the end of the week, this week, I've, even in moments where I was helping others and looking, looking to love others, I was thinking about my own sorrow, my own depression, my own mind, my own heart. And last night I had to repent. That's not what God calls us to do. Here David is in the middle of a wilderness, run out of town by his most loved one. And what is he doing? What does he say? Your blessing be on me. No. Your blessing be on your people. In all of his struggle, in all of his depressing moments, David's mind was a kingdom mind. All he can think about is Ziba. And all he can think about is Zadok. And all he can think about is the little old ladies who wept when he left Jerusalem deposed as a king. And how they must be suffering. And all of the people who gather around him in the wilderness, I can imagine him pinning this last part of the prayer looking at the people around him saying, your blessings on these people. Bless them. The verb here that is translated for us blessing is the same verb for saves. Is the same verb that later becomes the name that is above all names. Jesus. Yeshua. Here, the blessing that he's praying is on the people is a saving blessing. It comes to the name, later we know, of the Son of God. God saves. So what we find in the last lines here is that God saves his people, and that is their blessing, that they are saved. So I end much like I began, saying, my heart is distressed, my Emotion is raw. I feel 
not so good. I'm typically a very jovial person, if you know me. Lighthearted. Love to have a good time. Optimistic. But whether optimistic or downtrodden, I'm confident in the fact that God saves his people. And he will bless them. And he will keep them. Let's pray. Father.